Welcome back to Unplugged in St Kilda. I'm Sally Moore, a music history buff, and I'm taking on a journey back to the 1970s, 80s and 90s, where we'll hear the stories of some rocking musicians who lived in St Kilda back then. We'll hear about why St Kilda was so inspiring and uncover some great memories along the way. Today's guest is someone who's heavily experienced in the Melbourne rock scene. Having played in numerous bands throughout the 80s, including The Wreckery, he formed his own in 1988, Nick Barker and the Reptiles, and followed this up with a solo career in the late 90s. He's still making great music today, and he's one of St Kilda's local icons. Hello and welcome, Nick Barker. Hey, Sally. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right, thanks. Thanks for coming along today. Yeah, no worries. Looking yeah. forward to hearing your stories. <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> Nick, you fronted a number of bands and had ex- extensive experience on stage. Yeah. Can you give us a summary of your music career? Well, I'd moved to St Kilda when I was about 17 and I'd swapped schools and I was going to kind of a, a creative arts school in was Huntingdale Tech at the time and I met a few like-minded people who were kind of into, it was a sort of post-punk stuff, you know. We were kind of into The Cure and, and bands like that and so I just started kind of sneaking out to the ballroom to some gigs uh, and then sort of my kind of home life fell apart. My mum was in a car accident and she unfortunately passed away and, you know, I never got on with my old man, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I sort of shot through and ended up moving to St Kilda and just really immersed myself in it and I started, I'd always kind of played a bit of guitar but I started playing bass and I, I was in a bunch of bands. I was, in, I was in a band called Beach House which was with Louisa and, and Rick and uh, I was in a band called A Singing Dog, which was the prototype of Lubricated Goat with uh, Spasm and, and those guys. And then, oh, God, I was in so many bands. I was in a band called The Curse with with Adrian, who who later went on to be Nick Bark and the Reptiles and, and Nick Needles and John and Graham from The Models and um, ended up joining The Wreckery, which was probably the band I was in. I made, I think we made five albums from about 84 through to about 88 or maybe 83 through to... So that was the band I spent the most amount of time in. Yeah. I played in other bits and pieces as well, but that, that was the one that... I mean, Rickery were kind of king of the heap in Melbourne a little bit, you know. I mean, it was a really incredible scene. You know, we called it little bands. It was the independent music scene, you know. It was labels like Rampant and, uh, you know, it was... It was a it was a fury of kind of of creativeness and and kind of artistic endeavor. I mean, people forget it was it was St Kilda was a hub, you know. It was kind of an arty hub, and you know we were kind of hanging out with with we're all he, you know rubbing head and shoulders with each other. You know, there was Nick Cave, there was there was all the, all, all Roland and and the and the birthday party guys. There was you know there was Spencer. There was you know. I mean, they were mainly Sydney guys at that time, but it was just it was just amazing. There was bands coming through all the time. I mean, some of the bands I saw at the ballroom, you know, the record we supported the residents there. We supported John Cooper Clark used to come out all the time. The Fall we saw, they used to play there all the time. Gee whiz, you know, I mean, I saw Echo and the Bunnymen. I saw Simple Minds upstairs at the ballroom. I saw Psychedelic Furs. I saw so many, so many bands. I saw In Excess there, you know, wow. Midnight Oil. You know, Recory supported birthday party numerous times, you know. It was just, they used, you, you could see six bands a night 
at the CV Ballroom upstairs and downstairs on a Friday and Saturday night. And, you know, I, I lost count of the amount of gigs I did there through throughout the early 80s. So it was, you know, and there were squats. You could live in, we all lived in a, in a squat in, um, in Carlisle Street. You know, it's four old flats. God knows what they're worth now. But talking about it, it's hard. I kind of ramble because there's so much stuff in my head. You know, just drive, even driving up Wellington Street, it's like that, 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 that. You know, it's just... Yeah. Yep. I live there. There's so many memories. Oh, such and such lived there. My first girlfriend lived there, driving up Fitzroy Street's the same, you know. Yeah. We had friends that lived in the Majestic. We lived in the, you know, the, who lived all throughout that area, you know. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't kind of impress how much it shaped me as who I am today, you know. It, it really, it shaped me as who I am as a songwriter, you know, and people kind of think of me as Nick, of Nick Barker and Nick Barker and the Reptiles, which was kind of a different beast. I'd, I'd had kind of, you know, eight years of solid playing before I was I started Reptiles and, you know, I, I kind of was shaped and influenced by the people that I was around were just some of the most incredible songwriters in this country, you know. So my influence, you know, pub rock was something that I kind of came to later, you know. Whilst I'd done a lot of touring in Australia up to that point, you know, I just... I mean, I was a roadie for Hunters and Collectors for four years, so. Right, okay. You know, kind of, so, you know, Mark and Greg Pirano were really good friends of mine at the time. So there was just that whole mix of people in yep. in and around St Kilda in the 80s. So it was, you know, it was a really, there was some incredible stuff going on, you know. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme, um, you know, that St Kilda was such a hub for so many musicians to meet each other and play together and, you know, Rub well, we had PBS in St Kilda, you know. That's right. It was kind of like I can remember going on PBS and Triple R, like you know, in the mid eighties and doing interviews and you know doing stuff at the Prince of Wales at Triple R nights and you know there's still recordings of it kicking around. You just people talk about the ESPY. The Prince of Wales was equally as important as yeah. a venue, you know, back then and. You know, we used to play the, the people wouldn't even remember the venue. The venue's gone now. But, what you know, Recory did shows there like, you know, the Triple Bill with Died Pretty and, and Be Suburban. Huge bands would come and play there that whole, you know, I've I seen, you know, Nick Cave there to 2,500 people upstairs at the venue. You know, I saw wow. the cult there in the early. I mean, you know, they, these venues are gone, but, you know, they were huge, huge venues that had multiple stages. I mean, the venue had an upstairs and downstairs, you know. Yeah. Hunters upstairs at the venue was something, you you know, the, with the floor shaking. It's kind of incredible, really, to think that it's just a shitty hotel now. And the palace, you know, even though it wasn't a kind of iconic building, yeah. some of the gigs we did there and some of the gigs I saw there were just, you know, like you'd never forget them. Speaking of the Palais, um, I hear that you had a life-changing experience there when you saw The Cure <laughs> as a kid. Well, that was the first gig I ever saw. Yeah. You know, and I was 16 and my mum drove me down. We were living, I grew up in Mount Waverley out in the southeast suburbs and, you know, yep. mum drove me down to the Palace and, I, you know, went in with my blue-black sticking up hair and my op shop suit and, you know, the, that was like, a kind of faith tour, and that was when the Cure were at, I reckon, their best. Certainly, when they're at their darkest, they were right at the point in of that Mervyn EP, you know, kind of yep. Gormenghast's. Well, I don't know if it was a trilogy. It was certainly two albums that he was kind of obsessed with that book, and you know the lighting and the sound. I mean, it was loud. It was, you know, it had a huge impression on me as a sixteen-year-old because I'd kind of, you know, I hadn't 
been in many pubs at that point and I hadn't, you know, the gigs I'd seen were just kind of Rock stuff. I hadn't seen anything like that before so kind of theatrical and it really had a huge effect on me. Yeah. I certainly started playing bass after I saw that gig, you know. Wow. And that was kind of what I did for the next, you know, eight, ten years. I was a bass player in kind of little bands in St Kilda, you know, so. Yeah. It was, yeah, I mean, you know, that Palais, I've done loads of gigs there over the years. The Recre had done a bunch of gigs there, you know. And it's an amazing place to play, you know. Yeah. Especially for me, going back to that, you know, standing on that same stage as Robert Smith, you know, and sometimes had to pinch myself, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, and the Recre um, ended up, we did a tour with, um, wow, it was kind of Joy Division, you know, it was Hooky doing that the first Joy Division album with his son playing bass and, you know, so it was – and we did the support and it was, it was you know, pretty amazing standing up there and watching, you know, there's a bunch of kids in the audience with Joy Division T-shirts on, you know, totally getting what the Recory did and was doing even though it was kind of 30 years past the day, you know. So it's, it's this weird kind of wheel, you know. Yeah, yeah. In that same kind of – same kind of – same kind of building that I'd seen all those gigs in, so. Yep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I understand you frequently visited St Kilda as a child. Uh, yeah, well, it... my, my nana and pop lived, my dad grew up in Barclay Street, just down towards the beach there, you know, and that's, that stretch, I can't remember what number it was, but it's probably not even there now anymore, but nana and pop lived down there. And my whole family on my father's side were from Port Melbourne and St Kilda. So they all lived in that area, uh, Elwood, St Kilda. They all grew up there. So we, as a family, we'd all, we'd have Christmases down there and we'd all troop down to, um, my, my pop was a member of the St Kilda RSL. So, you know, like most RSLs, you'd always have free shit, you know, you'd have free rides to Luna Park and, you know, you'd always get cheap meals at the Ferry Stork Chinese restaurant in Ackland Street. And so we... You know, we were kind of always going and doing stuff or he'd take me down to the RSL and, you know, I'd have a lemon squash and he'd have a beer with his mates and, you know, tell war stories because he was in the Second World War, the First World War rather. And, you know, that's kind of like St Kilda was like really big, you know, when Dad was growing up and, you know, in, throughout the First and Second World Wars, it was that real, you know, it was like Coney Island, right? And that's yeah, kind of what it was yeah. designed to be and then it sort of, Throughout the 60s and 70s, you know, it, was, it fell on sort of dark days, I guess, you know. And, you know, the, the thing then was moving out to the suburbs, right? And we all grew up in the suburbs and that was the dream everybody wanted to, you know, my family, my parents were no different, you know. They, they, we had a house in the suburbs and a, with a lawn and, you know, all the rest of it. So going back to St Kilda to visit Nana and Pop for me was... You know, it scared the shit out of me as a, as a kid, as a six-year-old, because it was it was nothing like where I grew up, you know. Very different. And Ackland Street, as I said, you know, was, was like a wasteland on Sundays, you know. It was just, you know, in my mind I can see tumbleweeds, but, you know, clearly that's – I've just made that up. But it was – I just remember kind of cloudy, dark days walking up Ackland Street on a Sunday holding my pop's hand and, you know, the palm trees just didn't fit with the with the kind of mood of it. You know, it wasn't a. It's a mixed it wasn't bag, a bright isn't it? Sun. No, and, 
And, you know, the, the shops were all shut. You know, the, the Fairy Stock restaurant might have been open. Luna Park was open. We'd go in there and we were, there was only a handful of people in there. You know, I just remember Pop having these rolls and rolls and rolls of tickets that he'd gotten, you know, from, from his mate at the RSL. And, you know, I can remember going out and having, you know, going up and getting Santa would give Christmas presents out at Memo, what was Memo, Memo. which used to be the old hall at the back of the RSL. Yep. And we'd go up there and, you know, they'd have a Christmas do every year. So, you know, I always remember being glad to get home, you know, back to back to suburban safety because it kind of freaked me out. Yeah. So kind of w- w- when everything went down when I was 17 and I kind of moved there, it was a strange Weird place to be gravitating to for me, considering I'd I'd kind of been really scared of the joint when I was little because of you know there's just a few darrows around and you know, <laughs> and from there I just sort of watched it, watched it kind of change, you know, because I, I lived there all throughout the nineties and all throughout the kind of two thousands, and to watch it sort of become from what it was to this great artistic hub in in the eighties to. The nineties when the SB was probably at its strongest, you know, and the Prince, yeah, uh, you know, and then it kind of just be sort of become, you know, this sort of backpacker hub, which kind of cheapened it a little. I mean, I understand that, and I get the economics of it, but you know, I, I sort of remember playing at the SB and people yelling out for REM covers and thinking in my mind that that was a punctuation mark, that it was that it had kind of gone to crap, you know, it's changing when they started having kind of you know, free pot with this and that, you know, that kind of real thing you'd only see in cans and places like that, right. you know, appealing to a kind of budget traveller, which once again, you know, I've got no problem with because that's the economics of the times. But I just remember thinking yeah, it's, it's kind of gone when the SB kitchen shut and that was because it really had, there was a real period there through the 90s where the SB and the St Kilda Music Hub had a real kind of resurgence, you know, and like it was kind of around the time I put my first solo album out and, you know, we shot the we shot the cover for it on the Esplanade, you know, on a Sunday afternoon and the juxtaposition between the Sunday afternoon that we shot that cover on, the Happy Man cover with my mate Terry dressed as a clown on acid walking up, <laughs> you know, the Esplanade with just thousands of people and, you know, they kind of crappy markets and everything in full swing compared to the kind of 15 years earlier when there was just that scary macabre place with the palm trees and the, you know, the the, the ghost, the ghost, the river caves and the ghost train and that kind of thing, you know what I mean? And so that, having that clown on the cover to me was a real, I was trying to recapture that. And, and oh. if you can ever find that album, there's a painting that a friend of mine did that basically it's a painting of me standing on on the upper esplanade, looking back over at the at the at Luna Park, and it's this really grim portrait of it because I'd kind of explained to him this thing, and so yeah, but yeah, and then it kind of just yeah, toward the end of the nineteen nineties, it just sort of reverted to this sort of you know kind of budget travel place, which you know I sort of lost interest in it around then, you know, but. Yeah, I'm still kind of living around there, but it's just to me, it's kind of. But you know, as I was trying to say to you, you know, people were really nostalgic about the Esplanade and everything, and you know, and whilst I am about the building, you know, that what I remember most about all those places was the people that ran them, because that, you know, you can't just kind of go, oh, that building was responsible for this, and you know, if you t- if you talk about the, 
you know, the, the Seaview Borum, you're talking about people like Graham Richmond, you know, that ran it. And, you, and, you know, if you talk about the Esplanade, you're talking about people like Trish Shoesmith, you know, God rest her soul. And yet they're the people that had the passion and got up every day and booked the bands and made sure everything went right and, and wouldn't have cover bands on and made sure that those Thursday nights stayed free where you could play to 900 people on a Thursday night in the Espy. You know, man, it was... It was something special to be a part of, you know, and and most people I speak to now remember those nights or, or you know, when you could go out and play in the Gershon Room, you know, or just it was an interesting time and the people that were behind it were the people that had were passionate and to kind of expect it all to stay that way is, is it's kind of naive, you know. I understand it. I know, I completely understand it. And, you know, I would, I would have hate to have seen the SB bulldozed, you know, so I'm glad they yeah. kept the facade and did that. But it was always going to be window dressing, right, you know. You're never going to recapture what it was because it was people, you know. The people. So I hope I'm making sense, you know. No, they're the people that I remember, you know. Yeah. When, when I see Trisha's son pop on, pop on Facebook, I think, of, I think of her and I think of what she did for us. Yeah. And how she supported the bands, you know, at the ESPY. I don't think of the ESPY itself per se. I mean, I do think of the sun, the sunsets and having a beer looking yep. out and doing sound check and having the sun blazing in my eyes and feeling really good, you know. I do think about that and I think about all the friends and everything that I kind of have known there and all the experiences I've had. I think of Ian Ryland and X playing there on Sunday afternoons. I think of Pete Jones and Diana Kiss you know, with Ross Hannaford on Monday nights and I think of all that but I also think of, you know, the, the, the people there and I think of Big Robbie, the bouncer and you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. it's kind of like that, you know. Yeah, I guess the people that are that are involved, like booking agents and, you know, they're just imp- as important as other artists that you played with. Well, and- they're the ones that had the job at hand, you know. We'd just go up there and drink a dozen beers and, you know, just play rock and roll. That was the easy part, you know. Yeah. The hard part was kind of balancing that with whoever owned it and, you know, the balance sheets and the support of the local community, you know. How do you quantify it? You know, how do you know what works in a venue and what doesn't, you know, because I remember like that going, people forget that the the, the Seaview Boreham was a shitty old place, you know. It's not like the George is now. And it was boarded up for a really long time in the the 1990s, right. We did a Nick Barker and a Reptiles clip there in 91 in what's now that George Front Bar, you know, we had to get permission and a crowbar to get in there, right? And we walked upstairs to where the old upstairs of the Seaview Ballroom was and it was just, you know, it was, it was on the verge of collapse. It was deserted and, you know, this is a room where I've seen 150 bands, where I saw Simple Minds, for Christ's sake, where oh, I saw, yeah. you know, where Recory supported, supported, you know, the, the birthday party, where Recory supported the residents and, you know, where I saw Iggy Pop, you know what I mean? Wow. It just I saw Iggy Pop with, with with Chris Stein from Blondie playing guitar. You know, this stuff that you can't kind of, you, can't you know, it just it. sat <laughs> there for years. So, you, you know, people aren't nostalgic about these joints is my point, you know. People just see bucks as we know. So like a, you know, a venue is no different to a block of flats. You know, people aren't going to lose money because of the, because they're kind of on some nostalgic thing. So people forget that about those buildings in St Kilda, they sat idle for a mm. long time. The back half of the ESPY, you know, sat idle for a long yeah. time, you know. And so, you know, w- w- what they did with the Renault, while well, people can say, oh, yeah, they're trying to make money, but 
you know, I would argue that they're just working in towards today's business model and they've tried they tried reasonably hard to keep the live music side of it, but you can't ever recreate it, you know. Yeah. It's like trying to put a tiger in a zoo and, and make it feel 100% at home. It's just, you know, it's not going to work. So, look I, look, I guess I've got the luxury of being 57 years old so I can be nostalgic, you know. <laughs> But kids today don't care about that. You know, they've got their own history they're making and there's pubs like The Curtain and stuff that they'll lament in 10, 20 years' time and that's music. I can only come at this from a music point of view and I know that musicians are incredibly resilient yep. and you've seen that in the last two years, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. And venues are incredibly resilient. So, yeah. You know, and pubs, venues, you know, they've shut and closed all the time all throughout my musical career, you know, and this is, you know, you, you could – Talk the same about the playroom on the Gold Coast. You know what I mean? That that shut down and you know, broke a lot of people's hearts. But you know the the, the kind of memories of it and the, and the spirit that that made those venues kind of lives on. And if I can't, you know, I don't want to get too esoteric about it all because it's people that put those things on. So yeah, um, you know, they're just rooms, right? You yeah, know. they hold a special place, though, don't they? They certainly do. Um, so speaking of venues then, um, do you have a sort of a favourite one that you used to play in or still oh, play in? You can't beat that front bar of the ESPY. Front bar of the ESPY, mm, yeah. You just can't. Yeah. From a from a band point of view, I mean, here's another thing, you know, like a lot of places put venues on sale, we're having live music, and then they'll put these shit kind of Tupperware, what we call Tupperware PA systems in them and, you know, never maintain them. And it's just, the ESPY had really good production. It had really good sound guys. Oysters and all the people that Nick Mars and it used to do front of house in there, you know. So you could go in as a band and play some through some serious production, play loud, you know, and just really have a crack. You know what I mean? And yeah. listen, you can't do that anymore in Melbourne. You know, there's not many places where you can play as a rock and roll band in Melbourne if you're starting out. You know, yeah. because you'll you'll be told to turn down, you'll be made to play acoustic. You know, you get just there's this kind of constant bureaucratic castration of rock and roll, you know, like where they don't let you do your thing. Yeah. So, but the SB was just, you know, you could go in there and, and, you know, it sounds cliche, but you could go in there and rock, you know. Yeah. And I have such good memories of the place, you know, such good memories in so many different bands through Nick Barker, Reptiles, through all, all different bands I've had. Recory played there when we reformed, you know, just tons and tons of different things that I've done there over the years. So... You know, and as far as uh, other, I mean, look, playing at the venue was incredible too. Yeah. I mean, that was like incredible. Uh, the, the the palace that got pulled down. Yes. Like, I mean, throughout the nineties, I saw like Soundgarden there. I seen Alice in Chains. I mean, big, loud grunge bands. You know, Nirvana. I saw play there. You know, I seen. And in just a phenomenally good sounding room. People don't rate it because it was this kind of. You know, it was a sort of weird kind of, I don't know what year it was. It wasn't really that because it's right next to the Palais. Yeah. You know, it kind of looked weird. It looked like a kind of weird motel or something. But it was a really great sounding room and a great room to play in. Like Reptiles played there a bunch of times and, yeah, you know, and the Palais, you know, of course. Any of those those rooms, they're easily my favourite room. I mean, you know, and even... <laughs> You know, both but both stages in, in, in the Crystal Ballroom, downstairs in the Crystal Ballroom was an incredible place to play, you know. Yeah. Got a few favourites. Well, I guess that's where I cut my teeth, right? Yeah. But they never skimped on production. 
you know, you can bang on about that, but every anyone who's in a band will know what I'm talking about. You know, when you can feel the PA, you know, when you can kind of feel that when you're playing, especially when you're a bass player or a drummer, you know, you can kind of, you're aware that you kind of, you're making some air move in a room. That's when you kind of get your power, especially when you're in your 20s, you know. Yeah, yep. There's nothing worse than sort of doing all this rehearsal and getting up there and then being told to turn down by some squid who's, you know, got an iPad plugged into the to the PA. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just my apologies to the fine production people in here. But <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, yeah. it, it was kind of, yeah, look, I, I know I'm rambling on, but no, it, no, that's I'm fine. trying to get my thoughts around what it was like to be a 20-year-old and never having played in bands and then going into those places that really gave a shit about how the band sounded yeah. and had good PAs in there. And that for the, for the late, early 80s, that, PA in the downstairs, I can't rack my brains to think of the dude whose PA it was, but he, it was serious W bins, you know, like it was, it was like a triple four way that was downstairs and it was an upstairs and they were great systems, you know, they were really good analog wooden boxed PA systems, you know, that you really could, you know, and seeing like the board, you know, see the birthday party in that room, you know, they were, people forget they were a seriously loud band, you know, it was so, so had such an impression on me. Yeah. Like seeing those early Beast of Bourbon gigs in there. You know, it was it was quite something else. It was like being – it would have been like seeing the Ramones or, or being at CBGB's or something like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, wow. You won't forget it when you're kind of 20 years old, seeing, seeing Nick Kay standing up there covered in paint or even a band like Dead Can Dance, you yep. know, just a frightening band, you know, like really would – it was so gothic. Yep. You know what I mean? Like yeah. just – Yep. But they were loud, you know. These bands were, these, you know, people think they were sort of these dinky kind of post-punk bands. They weren't. No, and they were allowed to be loud. Yeah, there was no, yep. you know, it was just, I don't know, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, it really is quite to, you know, now that I, you're making me think <laughs> about it, you know, I just remember, you know, it's any wonder I ended up playing in bands, you know, because they were, these were pivotal times and, you know, it's the same as, you know, watching, you know, my, my kids now, how they respond to, to music that they like. But you won't – live music, that's – I think that's the essence of what live music is. You know, you're certainly gonna, not going to get that feeling by watching someone strumming away into a laptop with a mate and, do you know what I mean? Standing there watching a band, like even, say, you know, the Moodists, you know, like yep, Dave Graney's yep. band. I mean, I saw them play – bands were playing you – know, you might see them three times a month. You know, at the ballroom because we were just there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, yeah. and they just there'd be you know bands on all the time, and just great, great, great bands. Huxton Creepers, you know, like I don't know. <laughs> oh, it sounds amazing. <laughs> Hunter's <laughs> upstairs at the ballroom was something to behold. Like that's kind of World of Stone days, you know. Yeah. When Greg was playing percussion, you know, it was really amazing. Great. Chevron was a good venue too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm at there it. Are a few. Not really qualifies St Kilda, I don't think. But oh, so speaking of a different type of venue, um, back in 2016, you were involved in reliving another St Kilda icon's life, Bon Scott, at the National Theatre. You claiming him as St Kilda? I don't know. I think he got your hands full there. <laughs> I think he was St Kilda East for a well, while. Well, he lived there. They lived in a house there for a little while. Ah. Uh, I mean, basically, you know, Sunshine, he lived in. <laughs> East Fremantle, claim him. 
Adelaide Hills claim him. Everyone you know? will take him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But certainly, ACDC did live there for a, for a little while. Uh, but yeah, we did that show. It was unreal. I'll tell you where we did do it. it was at the National Theatre. National Theatre, yep. Now that is an incredible place. Yeah. And we were like, you know, to do an ACDC, it was like, it was kind of the same as Texas Man in Black. It was a narrated concert where it's me telling the story of Bon Scott's life and we're doing songs all through Valentine's, all through fraternity, right up to ACDC. And, but we did that over a couple of weeks at the National Theatre. And we were loud, man. I mean, that was that that is an incredible building too, you know. It's so, a beautiful building and inside and out, actually. Oh man, you know, like it just just incredible. So like to kind of do that there was yeah, it was you know, I guess you can equate Bon Scott with uh, St Kilda, you know. If yep. you're drawing a long bow, but it was <laughs> yeah it was a really cool place and you know, that's kinda of like you know, just up the road from there is where we lived in our squat, you know, which was so that was kind yeah. of an amazing – and every time I walk past that building, I sort of, you know, I kind of get a shivers on the back of my I, neck. You I know, bet, so yeah. People forget that St Kilda was like that, you know. It wasn't always a really overpriced suburb to live in, you know. There was a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, what we call gentleman's housing, they used to call it, yes. you know, a lot of it. You know, you walk up Ackland Street and you'd, you'd hear, you know, you'd smell boiling cabbage and – you know, you'd smell that from, you know, these guys, a lot of Eastern European guys, you know, that were recovering alcoholics and, you know, used to work in the big factories and just a lot of people, a lot of lot of middle-aged men who were out of work and probably a lot of them had, uh, you know, probably some certainly substance abuse and certainly, you know, probably mental health issues and there was a lot of that housing and, you know, a lot of those people got kicked out. you got, you got to remember that when they're when the kind of – Inverted commas, gentrification happened. Yep. You know, it, it, it was hard. We were there at the time, you know, and there's a lot of, and they were good people and they, it was a, they were part of the community too. But they got booted out, man, because those rents and that property value went up very, very quickly, like yep. in the late 90s, in the, from about 97 to 2000. I, you know, all of a sudden people are going, gee whiz, there's all these people homeless on the streets and Kilda's turned to shit. And we'll say, well, you know, it's only because they were living a hundred yards away inside their house, inside their rooming house, and then they got booted out. They've lived there all their lives. Where else are they going to go? You know, yeah, that's so, somewhere. So there don't was they? a dark side to it as well. The end of the nineties was kind of a bit of a, you know, if you were a real estate agent or, or you bought property, it was the best time of your life. But for a lot of people, for a lot of musicians, for a lot of, you know, that's when a lot of people got priced out, and it's when a lot of people got made homeless and. That's yeah. kind of when it sort of, you know, and that's when it sort of had that shift, if you like. That's when I noticed yeah. it anyway. Yeah, yeah. There have been a few shifts, haven't there? That was the one most monumental one, I reckon. You know, yeah. it was it was the, the time when the music industry changed a lot, you know. Yeah. And also things started going to festivals and stuff, you know. But I do remember once getting, I guess, the, the kind of culmination of a lot of it. From, I think it was 1989 or 1990, Reptiles played at the... When we were at the kind of peak of our powers, we played at St Kilda Festival. Yeah. And we did the, you know, the sun was setting, we are on the beach. And I remember my auntie was mayor of St Kilda at the time, right? So right. she served two or three terms of, as mayor of St Kilda, Elaine Miller. She's passed now. But my dad's younger sister. So she was mayor of St Kilda and she, so she announced us onto stage 
you know, and she said, oh, it's my nephew. We're all very proud of him, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's got a long history in St Kilda and I, we came out and, you know, we were arguably probably the biggest band on the bill even though we weren't headlining. I think the Hunters were headlining. They were still bigger. But we just, this surge in response. Yep. I reckon to me it was probably all downhill from there really because, <laughs> you know, there's God knows how many thousand people there were on the foreshore. The yep. sun was setting. It was a beautiful day. My auntie, the mayor of St Kilda, oh. has introduced me on. So that to me was a... You know, after moving to St Kilda in kind of 82, that was probably, you know, and then achieving that within eight or nine years was was incredibly emotional for me, you know. So Yeah, anyway, yeah. It was interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to hear that, you know, not only did you move here and grow musically, but, you know, you had all these family connections yeah, here. Yeah, my auntie was, was, one of the first, was one of the first mayor, female mayors anywhere in Melbourne, so. She was a bit of a trailblazer herself, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, Nick, you're definitely considered an icon in our local area. <laughs> what impact do you think you and your music had on St Kilda? Well, once again, you know, I see my time in St Kilda as part of a collective, you know. I'd, Reptiles kind of was a bit more out of the sphere, even though we lived around there and, and still played around there a lot. More, I see my time in St Kilda as being that early 80s, you know, that's when I think, but, you know, when I say my contribution, my impact, I was one five hundredth or one, whatever the equation is, I don't know, of a really thriving small scene. You know, as I said, I played in a bunch of different bands, you know, I played in, and that, with incredible musicians. You know, that first band, The Curse, I was in, I, I try and make a point of putting one of their songs on every album I do because they're just floating around in the air now and they're yeah. still some of the most incredible songs I've heard. So that's my kind of hark back to that time. But, but you know, it, coming at it from an impact and a contribution, I see my contribution as part of that. And it's, you know, everybody who was around there at the time, the contribution I made later on, well, that's kind of, you know, you can look at that as, you know, reptiles were a lot more of a, not a corporate entity as such, but we were signed to a major label. So we were doing things in a different way. I guess we contributed to more of to a, an Australian pub rock scene. Yep. I always tried to spruce and Kilda, you know, that eighties scene, you know, and then the early nineties with 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 the SB and just being involved. But we were more proactive when we were in the eighties. You know, everybody was for the scene and worked for the scene, and people were just a lot more helpful, you know. And everyone played in everybody else's bands and. Such and such would, you know, you'd kind of do this gig here, then everyone would pack up and all go off to the Prince to see such and such. Then we'd all go down to, you know, one of the 24-hour bars and catch up and, oh, you played at the Mount Eric tonight, how was that? You know, it was it was such a collective, you know. Yeah. That's what I remember most about it and that's kind of, I guess, you know, everybody was making records. We were putting our own records out. We were... You know, it was really hands-on, you know. It was like a kibbutz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was – so I guess that's – that's I like to think that my impact's in there. I mean, people don't realise. People just think I'm some kind of guy that was, you know, in this band of reptiles. But I see it more, a lot more as, 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 as my formative years from when I was about, you know, kind of 17 to 23, 24, you know. Because, yep. you know, we were, there's no secret we were, you know, we were all involved in drugs a lot too. But even that, you know, it was less kind of desperate than it is now. It was kind of more of a kind of, it was a weird scene, you know. It was, everything was going, you know. It was, it was a really weird 
It was our version of the 60s, I suppose, the early 80s, you know, that post-punk. Yep. People think of the 80s, but, man, the music in the 80s, it's got a bad rap. It was yep. fucking incredible, yeah. you know. It really, really was. Go back and listen to some of them Recre albums. You know, yep. I dare defy you to tell me whether they've dated. They haven't. Yeah, You yep. know, in fact, they're probably sonically more relevant than they were throughout the 90s, you know, so you should write a book. You should, you should. <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone needs, another book from some... 50-year-old kind of nostalgic Oh, I'm sure it would be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, it's been a real pleasure hearing your stories about St Kilda today. The ramblings of a madman by (laughs) Nick Parker. Sorry, I'm very serious. I kind of get really serious when I talk about it because I was kind of, I was a serious cat then. No, no. There's tons of funny stories and tons of, you know, the friends I've made and the funny, funny things that happened and... I'd, I'd need hours, but that's kind yeah. of the outlay of it. I just no, that's great. My take on it is that early eighties. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. It was, it was phenomenal, and I was. I'm so happy I was a part of it. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It was real. My pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me. It's nice no to problem. It was fantastic to hear all those nice stories to and put up with the my, connections my, you have. My family's sick to death of me rambling oh, about the old days. You know. <laughs> So it's nice to have someone listen. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sam. No problem. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, my pleasure. It's no wonder why so many musicians are inspired by St Kilda. From amazing architecture to such diverse residents, we really do have it all. St Kilda's live music scene is something unique and we are lucky to call it our own. Thanks for tuning in. You're going home in the back of a divvy van. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to thank the St Kilda Historical Society and its committee for the opportunity to carry out this project and for all their support along the way. The Historical Society does a lot of work throughout the year to preserve the history of our local area and make it accessible for all. Members pay $20 a year to join and receive three newsletters per year full of information and great stories. They have events throughout the year, including local history walks, talks and presentation of new research. See their website, stkildahistory.org.au, for more information. Our local council, the City of Port Phillip, does so much to support the magnificent arts here in St Kilda. A big thank you to the council for their funding in this podcast series as part of their Cultural Development Fund. Thank you for seeing the value of this project and, in particular, thank you to Sharon Dawson for your guidance along the way. We look forward to seeing the other projects from this round of funding come to fruition as well. Sending out a big thank you to the animals for their assistance with the promotional side of this project. The animals are a one-stop shop for advertising, brand building and idea generation and have collaborated with many companies both here in Melbourne and around Australia. See their website, theanimals.com.au, for more. The Unplugged in St Kilda podcast was recorded at Big Ears Audio, 97 Wellington Street, St Kilda. I'd like to take a moment to thank Tony, Adrian, Laz and their team for doing such a brilliant job recording, editing and producing the series and for their professional advice along the way. And last but not least, I'd like to thank my wonderful volunteers who helped me put this series together all the artists who gave their time for interviews, and to you, the listener, for joining me. I've had a great time creating this project and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.